From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Though many of us may not consider ourselves fans of spiders, you, Chris, are you a fan? Yeah, sure. I, I, I think I'm not, not a fan. They do scare me a little bit. But jumping spiders are some of the world's most fascinating and aerobatic acronids. Acronids? Arachnids. <laughs> they are even crooners singing and dancing to woo mates. This morning we'll learn more about the wonderful world of jumping spiders with Harvard University's Paul Shamble Arachnids. Yes, then in the second part of the show, award-winning author Tony Hiss joins us to discuss his latest book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. Rescuing the Planet is a timely plea to protect 50% of the Earth by 2050, or otherwise 50 by 50, thereby saving millions of species of plants, insects, birds, fish, mammals, and in doing so, saving ourselves. Mm, all that and some news about how a drought in Panama is impacting the Panama Canal and global shipping and how the top 10 warmest years on record are now the top 10 latest years. Yes, environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. And we're back with this Tuesday, January 30th edition of This Green Earth. I'm Claire Wiley. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And our first guest is Paul Shamble, who is a former John Harvard Distinguished Science Fellow. And uh, Paul, I think to start this, we'd just like you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into the fascinating arachnid world. <laughs> oh, uh, well, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, no, it, it, is a, it is a very strange and fascinating world. That's true. Um, you know, I started in spiders as an undergraduate, actually. I did my undergraduate work at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted to do research, and I, I knew that, uh, at Berkeley at least, um, it was really hard to get into research labs. And so I was flipping through all these listings of, of, uh, of research positions, and one of them was about spiders. And I thought, well, other people are really afraid of spiders, and I'm not, so at least maybe I have a shot at that. Um, and, and so that sort of got me in the door, and there was really just no looking back after that. Um, I got a PhD from Cornell University, um, sort of looking at neurobiology and behavior of these little animals, um, their sensory systems, their cognition. Um, and then uh, I had the really, really amazing opportunity to, to be a John Harvard uh, Distinguished Science Fellow at Harvard for six years, where I got to run my own research group um, and uh, really sort of dig in on questions I was interested in. Um, and now more recently, I just uh, started a position not too long ago at a Yale Medical School. So. Um, doing slightly different things, but um, uh, are you doing? All... Are you are you working uh, still in the area of spiders uh, with Yale? Um, not really. Okay. Um, along my journey with spiders, um, one of the things that that you sort of becomes clear quite quickly is that no one makes anything specific to spiders. So if you want to do research on spiders, you have to make all of your own stuff. Right. Um, mm. And so I, I I did a lot a lot of that. And um, uh, after my time at Harvard, um, there's sort of a special group down here that does, uh, we build custom scientific instruments for people, for researchers at, at Yale. And so um, okay. because I'd sort of gotten into that, I started doing that more and more. All right. So with respect to 
so jumping spiders let's get a little yes. let's get a little uh 411 about jumping spiders <laughs> what is their range and habitat and most specifically can they be found here in park city utah you know, this is one of the things that I just love about jumping spiders. Um, they're more or less found absolutely everywhere. Okay. Uh, there are more species of jumping spider than there are of any other family of spider. Wow. Um, and you can find them anywhere that basically isn't actively covered in snow. Um, so places like Park City, um, once it warms up, if you just wandered outside and stared at a bush or the side of a building, um, uh, you would see them within, I don't know, a couple minutes. They just live absolutely everywhere. Well, and and they sound like a species that is pretty set apart, though, from other spiders. Uh, can you tell us some of their unique attributes? Absolutely. So, you know, usually when we think of spiders, we think of sort of Charlotte's Web-style spiders, um, these guys that build beautiful orb webs, and um, they just sort of sit and wait. Uh, and jumping spiders are very different. Um, they're active predators, so they're really more like little tiny cats. Um, they they wander through their environment. They have extremely good eyesight. Um, they're, they have eight eyes. Most spiders have eight eyes. Mm. Um, but in jumping spiders, they're arranged so that they have almost a 360-degree view of the world. Wow. They can see everything except for, like, directly through their backs. Um, and, and so they use this vision to see things like little insects that they want to eat. And then... They're, they're very smart, and so they sneak up on stuff, and then they jump on it and grab it. Um, so they, they live a very, very active lifestyle as opposed to sort of the, the passive predators that we usually think of when we think of spiders. And not too long ago, you were involved in a study that was about their acoustics. Even mm-hmm. though they don't have ears, they can sense or hear with quotes, I guess. How does that work? Yeah, this is a really fascinating thing. You know, the... We sort of tend to take hearing for granted, um, uh, but the the physics of how you hear become very complicated once you get really small. Um, so the the trick that spiders sort of have is that um, our ear works as, as what's called a true ear. So there's like a pressurized um, cavity with a membrane over it, sort of like a drum. Um, and so we hear pressure differences and what spiders have is they're covered in these little tiny, tiny hairs that are super, super delicate. And so what they actually respond to is when a sound is made, um, air molecules are moving. And so their hairs are so sensitive that they actually get knocked over by the sound wave coming towards them. Um, so they can hear without ears, um, which is uh, just a really cool, special way to do it. Okay, and then and circling back to the eyes, eight eyes, which you say is common for uh, many types, if not all types of spiders. Why eight? Um, ah. What what value and benefit does eight say versus six or four? What's wrong with two? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, why eight is is you know there are lots of things in biology that um, in some ways just kind of happen. Yeah, um, and. And in spiders, uh, this this magical number of eight is sort of one of the good examples of this. They have eight legs. We know from insects that six legs is a great way to get around. Um, most vertebrates that, have, that walk have four legs. Mm-hmm. We're sort of odd with our two. Um, 
And so a lot of it is just kind of uh, what you have and what you need to do, and that sort of drives your evolution. Um, so for spiders, uh, yeah, almost all spiders have eight eyes, um, but they're usually kind of packed all together towards the front, mm. and most spiders don't see very well. Um, and in jumping spiders, this this need for just really, really special visually guided behaviors um, has caused them to evolve to have these just really, really remarkable eyes. And it's quite cool. They're, they have sort of a functional specialization. So your eye, if you just think about one of your eyes, you actually only have, you have what's called a, a fovea. So the, the center of your eye has really, really densely packed receptors. Um, and then the rest of your eye, your peripheral vision, is really good at um, motion detection, but it actually has really, really low resolution comparatively. So this is why when you're reading something, you have to sort of scan your eye along the words because mm. only that small part of your eye can actually get enough information to be able to read the, the letters. Mm. And so in jumping spiders, the same thing happens. They have, but it's separated to eyes. So most of their eyes, sort of their side eyes, are their peripheral vision. And so they're pointed outwards. They're really good at object uh, uh, at motion detection. And then they have these great big central eyes that are basically their foveas. So they scan around with these, um, and it gives them really, really high resolution. And um, the, the resolution is so high, it's better than any insect. Hmm. And it is even better than lots and lots of vertebrates. Like hmm. They have high resolution than most lizards and turtles and um, uh, frogs. They, they see better than those guys. Right. Interesting. Now, they have earned their name jumping spiders because I understand mm -hmm. they're quite acrobatic uh, and aerobatic, mm -hmm. and they, um, but they're very calculated. Can you tell us why they have this name? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you just go out and stare at them, uh, the name becomes pretty obvious pretty fast. Um, they jump a lot. Mm. They don't exclusively jump. Um, they'll walk along, and then uh, the the real the real magic happens is whenever they see a gap, um, they can just hop across it. And different species jump different distances, but in general, it's many many body lengths, like five to ten, are sort of easily hopped across by these guys. Which, if you think about how big you are and how far you can jump, um, uh, it's not that. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're 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 really really uh, quite special in this way. Um, and this really changes their their worlds. Um, it makes it so that uh, they can sort of take shortcuts through things. So if you imagine if you're climbing around on a rose bush um, and you want to get from one leaf to another, your choices are you hop across the gap and you're just there, or you have to go all the way around. You have to go back up the stem, or you have to go back up the branch, up the stem, and then out on another branch. Hmm. Um, and so it really changes the the way that they interact with their environment. Is it true though they do they have this like little line of silk that mm, helps yeah. it's like a drag line or it helps guide their path? Yeah, so um again almost all spiders sort of have this general trait where whenever they walk places, they leave a silk drag line. And they'll they'll usually anchor it every once in a while. Um and this does lots of different things. Uh in many cases it makes it so that if they sort of fall off of something. It turns out that uh, if you're a spider, you're so small that if you fall off of something, it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> you just hit the ground and nothing bad happens to you. You don't like, get a concussion. You don't break your legs. 
none of that stuff. Oh, how we um, wish that would be the case. I know, exactly. You know? Uh, you know, <laughs> Particularly the here. Inconveniences yeah. of being big um, yes. uh, for us. Uh, but for spiders, the, the, the cost is really that you're lost now oh. or you're someplace that you didn't want to be. And so um, most spiders leave this drag line, and if they fall off of something, then they just turn around and climb back up. And so now you're just back to where you started, which is great. Jumping spiders have evolved to do this very, very sort of amazing trick um, that my, my group at Harvard worked on for, for a little while, um, where when they jump, they, they keep this drag line connected. So they're, they're traveling really, really fast, um, like close to a meter per second, um, which is really quick. Mm -hmm. And they continuously spin this drag line. Um, and so th this is sort of a cool thing. It means that they can make silk really fast. Um, but uh, when we started this project, there were sort of hints that they might actually be using this to control their jumps. Um, and so it turns out that if you, you know, do a bunch of really fun science with high-speed cameras and um, some cool lighting tricks, um, you can watch them make this line. And based on how these animals jump, if you imagine, um, well, it's sort of, uh, this is a story made for radio. Right. Um, <laughs> it, when, when they jump, they, because of how they jump, they have to rotate backwards. That's just sort of what happens. Hmm. Um, it's just because of where their legs are aligned and where their body is. Um, so as they leave the ground, they're rotating backwards a little bit. They're doing sort of a slow backflip. Um, the problem with that is that if you jump really far, you'll eventually do a whole backflip and you'll land on your head. So what these animals actually do is they have, they have control over that silk drag line. And so they kind of like pay it out in a controlled way that makes it so that it stops them from doing this backflip. And in fact, it makes it so that when they land, they're, they're rotating forwards. Um, so it's really counterintuitive, but what it means is that um, they can actually jump farther because they have this rope attached to them than they would otherwise be able to do. Um, because presumably landing properly is part of jumping well okay um, so let me let me let me reintroduce you quickly we're speaking with paul shamble he's a researcher of spiders and and uh, specifically today we're talking about the world of jumping spiders and uh, as you say paul they they jump to get around to get from point a to point b uh which is fascinating um just in itself on an evolutionary scale how how they develop that ability to think you know what I could walk from to get from this leaf to that leaf, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna jump and see how this works out, and eventually mm -hmm. that gets imprinted in in this this species. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole different. Uh, I don't want to go too far down that that route. I want to no, know I mean, what. The, the, okay, well you can get to in there, but tell me what if they're jumping to get from point A to point B? They're jumping after prey too, aren't they? Yeah, I mean th these things all you've really pointed this out and it's, it's an important and very fun thing to think about these things all go together so yeah um mm -hmm. you know the the ability of these animals to see really well mm -hmm. makes it so that when they see a gap that they can jump across or when they see something that they want to eat they can actually sort of act on that information um if if you jump really accurately but you can't see very well then it sort of doesn't doesn't work out mm. so they're they're a fun example of how um evolution sort of brings along all these things together 
because you're trying to make something that works. And so uh, you get sort of these these suites of traits that, that enable uh, specific behaviors. So yeah, in the case of jumping spiders, they are sometimes jumping to grab things. Um, they'll also jump to um, just to get around. Um, mm -hmm. And those things sort of go together. Uh, one of the things that's really remarkable about these creatures is that they can solve three-dimensional mazes. So if you imagine that you're in a, like if you're in some plant, there are all these branches everywhere. And if you see a fly pretty far away, there's sort of a puzzle there where <laughs> you're over here, there's a bunch of stuff in between you and the thing you want to get to. And how you're going to get from here to there is not very simple. Um, and so, you know, there might be gaps that you can cross and gaps that you can't cross. Um, and so there have been these really cool studies where um, it turns out that spiders actually look at this whole setup and they figure out how they're going to get to someplace and then they can go do it, which um, is, from a cognitive perspective, a really, really hard and uh, yes. challenging task, um, which is even more remarkable because these spiders um, have fewer neurons in their brain than a bumblebee. They're sort of more on the order of fruit flies. So the, they sort of... They can do all of these really incredible behaviors. They can see really well, um, but they seem to have, uh, I mean, smaller brain is sort of a, a strange thing to say, but right. um, it, it's sort of relevant. Um, they, they, they have less computing power than, than seems to be required of these tasks. So there's a really cool puzzle there um, and, and lots for us to learn. But they do have moves, and the males are smart because what I understand is they sing and dance to woo their mates. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, they, they have very um, adorably complicated courtships. Um, yeah, and so they, they do sing and dance. Males have these uh, specialized structures that create vibrations. It sort of sounds like, um, I don't know, it sounds like some mix between uh, a drum set and like a Harley Davidson. There's like <laughs> lots of revving um, sounds and um, and they actually, they, they channel that into the ground. And so the females can hear them, but they can also uh, feel them through the ground. Um, they have really good vibrational senses. So, um, so they sing to females that way. And then they wave their hands, their little arms back and forth, um, and they dance as well. So different species have different dances. Um, and uh, yeah, it's all very complicated. And it's, it's actually complicated probably for a pretty good reason, um, which is that... Uh, this is true of lots of spiders, but it's uh, also true of jumping spiders. Um, jumping spiders will eat smaller jumping spiders. Hmm. So, and females within any species are bigger than males. Mm -hmm. So that means that uh, if you wanna mate with a female, um, she has to be very sure that you're not just for eating. Right. Um, so, so these these dances are um, they're important, <laughs> right? And they're um, yeah survival technique, but also might there be other spiders who mimic that as a way of you know, like fooling the female, uh, and maybe there's yeah. other insects who pick up on these you know they're 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 the spiders predators or so may also pick up on these behaviors either they're listening for that audible dance or so there's i'm sure there's a very complex i'll use the word web of activity going on here <laughs> that puts them at oh, risk yeah. always i yeah. mean that's the you know the, 
the natural world is a sneaky place. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that, you know, in some ways you can see, you, you, you could view these kinds of courtship dances as, um, kind of a sneaky way to make it so that the, the window during which you're really, really obvious to the world is quite small, you know? Um, so this is true of lots of males courting, um, Male courtships are often, uh, you know, there's good work to show that this is sort of part of uh, sexual selection and evolution. Um, they're, they're loud displays, whether visually loud or, um, or acoustically loud. Um, but you can do that for just a special moment, um, which makes it so that, uh, of course, when you do something like that, your predators are more likely to see you, to recognize right. you, to pick you off. Um, but if you only do that for a little bit, then um, that sort of reduces the danger. Um, and uh, yeah, in terms of mimicry, um, mimicry is sort of a special thing within jumping spiders, but um, there aren't very many things that, that mimic courtships. Um, there is a jumping spider, there's a type of jumping spider that eats spiders that live in webs and it plucks on webs to, to lure the spiders towards oh. them so that it can catch them. So they, they do sort of a kind of mimicry that's that's quite tricky. Um, but yeah, okay. yeah, there's there's a lot of yeah. No, the 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 complex web is definitely there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just just a couple more minutes. I'm this show is about the environment. I'm curious in a in a warming world, uh, how is climate change impacting jumping spiders? If not, you know, spider species and and health and survival writ large are you seeing impacts there you know the this is not my specialty mm -hmm. but i can tell you that um there's so much as you guys you know talk about all the time there's so much clear evidence that our world really is changing in these ways um and that that matters to creatures like this and um, the communities that they live in so you know, whenever you read about um, the losses of habitats, uh, that of course affects animals at this scale. Um, the reduction of insect populations because of pesticides um, mm -hmm. and climate change reasons, um, that impacts animals of this scale. Um, and we know that they're really, really critical pieces to um, to how ecosystems work. Um, right. The, you know, the, the tiny insects and, and spiders that eat them um, they really do set up this vital piece of the ecosystem. Right. Um, and so they, uh, how they're doing is it, it matters um, and it, it should matter to us. Uh, I think m more than more than uh, it typically does to most people. Right. And from what I understand, there are more than 6,200 described species of jumping spiders. So they are quite prevalent out there. Yes. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, and um, you know the 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 Mountain West is a wonderful place to look for these guys. They're really they're really pretty spectacular. They look beautiful. Um, they're shiny and um, brightly colored most of the time, um, and they're just uh, they're really responsive to their environment. So if you see one, um, they often show up in people's houses. Even if you see uh, one walking on your wall, if you sort of wave at it, it'll follow your hand. They're they're just very very charismatic, um, and yeah, if you if you know if you and your listeners want to just go outside and um, 
I'd encourage you just go outside on a nice day and um, just find a nice place to sit and sort of look at the ground or look at a bush and you'll see a couple different species just right there in your backyard. I'm going to see them literally jumping around. How, how do I, how do they express themselves? That's going to be different from uh, another non-jumping spider. Yeah. The, the main way that you can tell is how they move. Um, most spiders are either totally stationary, like guys sitting in webs or, um, in, you know, either big round webs or sort of little funnel web type things. Right. Um, those guys usually just sort of sit still. There's also wolf spiders, which, yes. um, they're super active and they run around. Um, but typically wolf spiders run around in a way that kind of looks like they're just randomly running places because they sort of are. Um, I love them. I've worked on them too. They're fascinating and wonderful creatures. They also sing and dance for their mates. You know, they, they do all kinds of wonderful things, but they, they really are kind of just, uh, running around and hoping to bump into something. Um, and so when you see a jumping spider, if you watch it for a little bit, it'll be, it'll just become really obvious. They, they have an idea for where they're going. And it's very purposeful in the way that they walk around or in the way that they jump. So you probably won't even see them. You won't necessarily see them jump. But if you just look out for a spider that um, that feels like it's it knows where it's going, um, you're you're looking at a jumping spider. Well, they are very fascinating creatures, and I hope that out there everyone has a little bit more appreciation for the world of spiders, yeah. especially jumping spiders. And we appreciate you bringing um, something light and interesting and um, exciting to our listeners about these jumping spiders and bringing it in terms that we can all understand. Uh, what is a website that we could go to to learn more about Literally. that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You he loves Claire. the puns. Um, <laughs> what can we go to that? Maybe we can learn more about that acoustic study that you did or jumping spiders in general. Is there a place that you can direct us? Um, you know, uh, well, first of all, thank you for, thank you for having me. This has been really fun. It's always fun to talk about these lovely little guys. We um, appreciate it. And I hope that your listeners do really have a, you know, a, 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 a rosier outlook on them. Um, the, the internet is full of jumping spider stuff. I would say just sit down and they're especially, they're just really charismatic little things. Um, so my, my first recommendation is um, sit down and just do an image search for jumping spiders mm. um, and just have fun staring at them. They have really big eyes. So they sort of, and they're fuzzy. So they, they sort of tick these like very basic human boxes for what is cute. I know that sounds strange to say because it's spiders, but um, if, you, if you Google them, you will see what I mean. Um, and uh, I would say start there and just sort of um, let yourself enjoy them. Um, uh, I've given talks on YouTube about some of this stuff. You can find some of those. Um, uh, but yeah, just uh, I would say just just start there. Okay. Good, I love how you're encouraging though listeners to go out when the snow melts okay. to get out into the natural world and and really and I think our next guest is going to also allude to this about being a part of the natural world and respecting it and taking it in in the miraculous and, way that it and is. And again, I would say that's just just another of the unending examples of that we cover on this show of that that you know every insect, every every plant or so has a role and a link within a within a not just a food chain but an ecological chain that even eventually if it gets tilted or upset could ultimately impact us 
And so, you know, that to me is one uh, yet, yet another takeaway. Something as simple and benign and, and unknowing in our day-to-day world as, as jumping spiders or spiders in general uh, have a role uh, in the environment and our ecology and ultimately ourselves. Just, and, you know, I, I would also say that um, I think one of the things that's really special about this is that um, they really are right where you live. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when we talk about biology, we talk about things that are far away or in exotic places. Um, and these are absolutely fascinating, remarkable animals that we scientifically don't know very much about and do remarkable things. Um, and they literally live in your backyard. All right. So um, just sort of the, the joy you can get from that, I think, is worth it. Excellent. Paul Paul Shamble. Shamble. Yes, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you for having me. All right, let's take a break for an underwriter or two. When we come back, we'll speak with Tony Hiss. He's the author of the new book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the second part of the show is Tony Hiss. Among other things, he's the author of the new book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. Tony, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with you. Give us a little background about yourself and, and how you got uh, ultimately into the world of writing about environment and ecology, et cetera. Uh, well, I'm an East Coast guy. Um, and when I got out of college, I went to work at the New Yorker magazine. Uh, was a writer there for about 30 years. Hmm. And then after that, I've been a visiting scholar at New York University for about 25 years. Uh, this is my 15th book. Mm. And uh, it, it came about after some conversations with the great Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson, right. who died recently and who was considered the father of biodiversity, the great champion of, of all life. And we were talking in... Uh, he said that we needed to think at a larger scale in order to be able to do anything useful. Now that something like two million species are at, in danger of being coming extinct. Hmm. So uh, he said, we've got to protect more land. How do we get people's attention? Um, and I came up with the phrase half earth because the science seems to say that if we could protect half of most uh, critters habitats, then they could flourish. And uh, Ed, Ed liked the idea. Um, and he said, this is what used to be called among business types, a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Right. You have to set a, a goal that isn't too big because then people are discouraged from even trying and isn't too small because then you could just accomplish it and be done with it. I guess the, the most notable example is the space program back in the 60s put a man on the moon in a decade well the biodiversity crisis has always been is one part of the environmental crisis and we the first part of being the poisoning of the place that rachel carson uh, alerted us to way back when right second part being the climate crisis which is hitting us over the head now in a way that can't avoid thinking about this part's been harder to think about and it's been overshadowed. 
but a year ago, 193 countries met in Montreal and decided to take as a, an official global goal, setting aside at least 30% of the planet in this decade, 30 by 30, as a step towards 50% by 2050, 50 by 50. So I'm trying to introduce people to the whole subject and also to tell them that there are all a lot of good things already happening, people sort of taking up the cause. And I got to go all over the US and North American continent and, and finding people who are doing wonderful work, many of whom never heard of each other. Right. So when you say setting aside, what do we mean by setting aside? What, uh, what does question. that look like? And, give, and, and perhaps some examples of that. Well, traditionally we've talked, you know, we started with the land protection movement over a hundred years ago with national parks and also supplemented by what the, what local land trusts can do in either buying or putting easements on land. Mm -hmm. But it, we're, our focus is now changing in a way that I find very interesting. The more we look around, the more we realize that the, everywhere we look is saturated with life. There's life beneath our feet. There's life over our head. There's life down into the bottom of the depths of the ocean. And of course, we naturally tend to think as uh, uh, as being subject to the force of gravity that we live on Earth. But in fact, we live within this strange envelope of life called the biosphere, which goes down below us and stands up above us. And although life seems to have emerged on Earth very relatively early on and has produced extraordinary uh, continuity of life ever since then, most species live within uh, a range from the top of Mount Everest down to the bottom of a trench below the Pacific Ocean. And that's only vertically a distance of about 12 and a half miles, which as someone pointed out, if you've stretched out vertically and horizontally, hmm. you could drive across in maybe 20 minutes. Right. So in addition to the ancientness and the, the vast abundance of the place, there is this thinness built in, this vulnerability which we're only beginning to wake up to. So, so in protecting oh, land, okay. sometimes it means owning it, but sometimes it just means taking responsibility for it. What we're now learning is really, there's no such thing as a vacant piece of land right. or an empty lot because it's full of life. It may not have our purposes added, but it's got life already. So the challenge now is if we're gonna add our uses to it, can we do it in a way that doesn't just obliterate what's already there. And I think we have to come up with, I've started calling all species design, meaning how do we fit in, in a way that doesn't just elbow everything else aside. So say, for example, out, out West here, we can have kind of the obvious uh, parcels of land that have been quote unquote set aside, maybe, maybe national parks or, or, uh, uh, national wildlife reserves or it can be considered examples of setting aside, but might it also include, say, ranchers who are also trying to act, you know, in a sustainable manner and trying to absolutely, uh, work absolutely. the land while also kind of doing their best to conserve and preserve the land too? Oh, I think they're an essential part of the right. solution. And uh, more and more ranchers well, ranchers grew up devoted to the land. Um, so they are naturally guardians of the land. 
and they're very much part of any solution. And good things are happening in Utah. Uh, well, for one thing, you've got one of the most remarkable beings uh, anywhere, the uh, Aspen Grove Pando yeah. in the center of the state. Right. Which is considered the largest living creature. <laughs> A single tree that is 3.2 million pounds in weight covering 106 acres. Uh, it looks like a forest, but it's actually a single tree with 40,000 branches um, coming up from the from the extraordinary root system. And also just last year, your legislature set aside $20 million to build wildlife crossing structures across and under uh, highways, because right. we've just been learning as we learn more and more about the patterns of animals, how predators and prey behave, that the that the highways we've built have often been a kind of fencing, wasn't intended to be, separating animal populations, uh, and and um, and and now we can reconnect those populations across the highway. And in addition, prevent extraordinary number of crashes, which not only take human lives but cost huge amounts uh, to, in terms of collision damage, to repair, and. And you're also home to one of the groups that I've found to be the most effective groups, uh, the Wildlands Network, headquartered in Salt Lake City, hmm. a medium-sized group, but it thinks at a continental scale it's working in Mexico, as well as here in the States and up in Canada. So it's uh, right. an exciting time, as well as a time that needs to be very carefully thought about. Right. And you referred to ranchers as, as guardians of the land, and you also talk about indigenous people and mm. their place in all of this. And uh, there are indigenous protected areas now that they are driving on. Where is this being successfully modeled, and how can we learn from that? Well, the, the what's still the most intact and largest landscape anywhere seems to be the boreal forest up in Canada. Um, down here in the States, even in open country like Utah, we have been told that the frontier disappeared, you know, a century ago. But if instead of looking from east to west, we look from north to south, right at the, at the top of the continent is this extraordinary, enormous landscape, the boreal forest, um, where the indigenous people, although they were not well treated by Canadian governments for far, far too long, were never displaced. But now the Canadian government is turning to them uh, and thinking that the only way Canada could ever meet a 30 by 30 goal is by setting up these enormous uh, parks that would be stewarded by the indigenous people who are already there. Um, indigenous protected areas, as you said, Claire. Um, and some of them are going to dwarf the size of regular national parks. Um, if we think of Yellowstone, uh, which is 2 million acres as a sort of uh, common denominator of size of national parks, some of these will be three, four, five times the size of Yellowstone. So that's a very exciting development. We're speaking with Tony Hiss. He's the author of the new book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. And Tony, I'm, we've been focusing on the land, but I'm 
are we also including the oceans here as part of the 50 oh, percent like of marine sanctuaries <laughs> well we're in utah so <laughs> you can understand i know <laughs> we overlooked that but it's important to say, I, protect that too immensely important yeah and essentially important uh, because so much of the life and so much of where we are uh, in terms of life is out there in the oceans and and it's as has often been said recently, we know less about the ocean and its contents than we do about the moon or Mars. Right. It's been opaque to us because, of course, we can't just uh, hop in and see it. Now we have a new generation of, of submersible craft, uh, either crude or remote, and we're just beginning to see some of the extraordinary things down there. Uh, knocking our socks off. Whole, whole ranges of life, some of which don't even need oxygen to live, uh, but can live off the sulfur coming out of the vents at the bottom of the ocean. So, yes, it's hugely important. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Well, uh, if we're trying to get to 50% by 2050, and I think you said that we're also trying to first get to 30% by 2030, what percentage would you say we are at right now? How are we doing? Well, it, it is a BHAG, all right. I mean, I think we're <laughs> at about 15%, and it's taken us a century and a half since Yellowstone yeah. to get there. And now we're talking about doubling that in less than 10 years. That's certainly a stretch. Um, the Biden administration, whatever you think about them, did sort of adopt that as a national goal. And several states have set this 30 by 30 up as a statewide goal. Uh, California for one, mm. and New York State, my state, for another. Uh, and I've found that there are people responding in ways that they wouldn't have expected. There's a, a land trust up in western New York, uh, which is, New York's a big state, not by your standards, but it's a big state. Right. Uh, and just east of uh, Lake Erie, way at the west end of New York State, south of Buffalo, it turns out there's this extraordinary forest that's uh, full of biodiversity and a gorgeous place. And it has somehow survived all these years, probably because the Iroquois Indians, uh, Native Americans, kept it alive. Well, a land trust up there, a plucky land trust that has protected over 30 years, maybe 8,000, 12,000 acres, suddenly has discovered this forest and has, it's new project is going to be protect this forest. Well, this forest is 1.1 million acres. Hmm. So suddenly they're leaping ahead in terms of what they think they can do and what they think needs to be done. And I was also invited just a couple of months ago to the first ever meeting of something called the Mega Eco Projects Group. Well, this is people from all over the world who are working at the largest possible scale of protection. Uh, people from Africa, people from China, people from Korea, um, millions and millions of acres and co covering very multiple countries at once. Um, and they got so excited at being in the same room together for the first time that they now are going to form an ongoing group called the Mega Eco Projects Alliance. So it's an awful lot that's just popping up. It almost feels like uh, you know, we're being called to do it because of the urgency of the situation. Right. 
I like how you said that there is no real vacant land because we do say that a lot. There's a vacant plot. There's a vacant uh, land. And I and we just were talking with someone about jumping spiders and how every species matters to our ecosystem. And you do describe this as a hopeful book, Rescuing the Planet. Can you give us specific examples of people working to keep plants and animals alive? Well, one of the people I found most interesting to be in touch with was a, a guy from Northwest Florida called M.C. Davis, who had grown up a hard scrabble kind of guy. He actually made his first dollars playing poker, uh, but then became a hugely successful commodities broker. Um, never thought much about the land or about animals or plants and until one day he was caught in a traffic jam uh, in Florida, uh, sat there fuming, uh, didn't know what to do, glanced around and saw a billboard outside a high school that said Black Bear Seminar and he thought anything's better than this so he peeled off, went inside the school auditorium, he said sparsely attended meeting couple of Canadians who were lost looking maybe for day old donuts. Um, and up on the stage, two women who were talking about the plight of Florida black bears, which is a local subvariant species of Eastern black bears. Uh, and suddenly he got hooked. He thought, mm. I never thought about these, um, these people, these animals trying to survive just as we're trying to survive. And the next day he sent the two ladies enough money for them to keep going for a couple of years, which made them suspicious. Who is this stranger coming in? And what do you want? And he said, well, what I want is a list of all the 100 best environmental books because I'm way behind and I want to educate myself. Hmm. So he read the books and decided that if you were going to help save the bears, you had to save their habitat, which was this longleaf pine forest, which had been the signature ecosystem of the whole Southeast, but had disappeared after the Civil War because uh, that was the one way left to the landowners to make some money, to chop down this extraordinary forest. Uh, that's, it's the reason why Scarlett O'Hara never went hungry again. So he bought up some played out peanut farms for a song, wound up with about 51,000 acres of land that was considered junk right. and started replanting longleaf pine forest. Uh, I ran I ran across him about 13 years later. Place still looked awful scruffy to me, but he said, well, come back in another 287 years. This is a 300 year project. Um, we're just getting started. The black bears had already ambled in. Uh, he was also saving this extraordinary animal called the gopher tortoise, right. which burrows beneath the soil down there and is itself, its burrow is used by hundreds of other species as a place of refuge for, because in the black, in the gopher tortoise burrows, temperature stays the same pretty much all year round, about 70 degrees, doesn't freeze in winter, doesn't bake in summer. So here was this guy just deciding something could be done and I can do it and he did it. Well, he's passed on now, but he endowed the place with enough money to keep going and uh, there you have it. And it will not only be something extraordinary in itself, but it will connect up to uh, an Air Force base to the west, which has some longleaf pine forest and other longleaf pine forests to the east. So 
this just sort of emerged out of nowhere right. but there it is if yeah and if sorry if you liken your book to this black bear conversation that these two women had what do you hope that people take away or is there actions that you want people to take after reading your book hmm. well the thing is there's actions almost any one of us can take it and at any level of course there are good places to send money to but you can also just get involved um here in the East, there's uh, an extraordinary movement called the Homegrown National Park. Turns out that U.S. lawns, the amount of grass seed we raise is probably almost equal to the amount of wheat we grow and the amount of corn we grow. Hmm. But it's a, a sterile kind of, of growth because those grass plots uh, are not uh, friendly to other species. However, if you take just a tiny bit of it, and replant with some native plants, then the bees can come back uh, and the other pollinating insects. And so that's having great success. Um, it's something we can all jump into with both feet, no matter where we are, in town, in a city, in a suburb, out in the countryside. Uh, right. So many efforts underway. Uh, and the book tries to introduce the whole subject, both in terms of its urgency, but also in terms of the amazing amount of good work that's already underway and that we can all uh, embrace and become part of. Right. To a, to a, I like to say that to a butterfly or a bee or most insects, uh, lawns are front and back yards are lawns are uh, just flyover country, right? So. Exactly. <laughs> but if you give them stopping places within the flyover country, then they can bounce from one to the next. Exactly. Well, um, we got to wrap up. Uh, Tony Hiss, the author of Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. You have a website, Tony? Uh, I should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I urge you to take a look at the book if you have a chance. Um, and I'd love to hear from anyone. All right. Well, uh, we'll you'll, you'll certainly Tony hear. Tony Hiss at nyu.edu. Ah, Tony Hiss at nyu.edu. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning on This Green Earth. Oh, thank you, Chris and Claire. Good luck to you with all the wonderful work you do. Same to you.